This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. Hey, are you recording? I'm recording. You got kids screaming. Is this the Vancouver Real Estate <laughs> Podcast or what? Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm in basically a, like a family center right now. There's going to be lots of kids screaming. I'm in the courtyard of the complex we're staying in, and it's just all families. You could imagine the flight down here. It was like, <sighs> you know, maybe the worst flight I've ever been on. <laughs> so just just uh, before we get to it. You're coming to us live from Hawaii. We have on today the CEO of Passive House Canada, Chris Ballard, used yes. to be the Ontario Minister of Environment and Climate Change, knows building, knows business, knows government, and he's taken Passive House across the country. Super exciting conversation with Chris. But Adam, before we get to that, you're in a family center. <laughs> are, are all the families from Vancouver? I feel like this entire city has been hollowed out. I'm in uh, I'm in Kihei in Maui, which a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar with for sure. But it's uh, first of all, I'm seeing a lot of people from Vancouver that I know here, and then the second thing is that it's yeah, it's all it's all young families, so it's uh, it's been really good. But yeah, the flight down here, like mostly my kids screaming, but uh, a lot of other kids screaming too. So it was a little chaotic getting down. So not looking forward to coming home, but. Uh, <laughs> It's been a good trip so far. How many Vancouverites have you later realized they're from Vancouver, but they walk by you on the street and say aloha? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a clear sign that you're a Vancouverite. It's kind of like in Vancouver when someone calls Vancouver Van, and you know that they're not from Vancouver. <laughs> if or when aloha. somebody calls the podcast the Pod, <laughs> and they don't have one. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, no, anyways, it's pretty great. Not underselling it. It's uh, it's good to be here. And uh, I'm excited about this show because I remember I actually had a conversation with Chris. I think you were... I was somehow unavailable for this conversation, but I remember you were you came out of it and when I asked you how it went, you, had, uh, you were excited about it. Well, the big thing about it is Chris is super well-spoken, super bright guy. But the big takeaway here is you, you realize the urgency behind changing the building code and getting to net zero. And I think it's a really great, great conversation for that. And the other thing is, is it's just, you know, it furthers your understanding of um, how building code is changing. There's a lot of conversation about building, a lot of conversation about the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. So generally speaking, huge takeaways today. And I'm excited for this episode. And what I like, I feel like we've talked about passive houses on the show before, but always when I think of the passive house kind of movement, at least I often think of it as, you know, well-to-do Vancouverites building these very unique houses that you're like, okay, this is, this is really interesting. But it, the idea of scaling that seems, right. seems hard to imagine. And that's, that's what Passive House Canada is doing. 
Well, and it's interesting too, because we talk about the differences and challenges that you experience uh, in the different provinces, right? I mean, obviously in Vancouver, we're dealing with uh, in environments and elements that are significantly different than what you'd be dealing with in Manitoba, per se. Right. So that's, you know, that's another thing that we cover and we talk about. So a lot of useful information in this episode. Well, fantastic. And I should say, yeah, Adam, have- you're in a family center in, in Hawaii. Yes. I'm in a bed and I can't leave it. Yeah. <laughs> I, we're, we're, we're having uh, different types of vacations. Different. I feel like you had, we, at Christmas, we had very different types of holidays. Uh, likewise yeah. at spring break. Um, you're in a drug induced coma. So tell me you you had a ski accident. I, I'm not quite in a bed right now, but I have have gotten out of it to do the podcast and we'll be back in it very soon. Uh, yeah, I had a ski accident on Monday. It wasn't that bad, but uh, it was fairly bad. The worst I've ever experienced. So it was like a a yard sale. So here's just some random thoughts. And I'm sure everybody's went through this, uh, that ski, I was up at the top of Blackcomb. And kind of messing around. There's tons of snow. It was having a really good time. And I went up the side of this kind of ledge that was about four feet off the ground. And I thought, oh, there will be a, there's an on-ramp. There should be an off-ramp at some point. And I was going quite fast. And uh, suddenly there wasn't, didn't look like there's no way to get down from here unless you fly off this ledge, which I thought, you know, when you get overconfident, um, I definitely yeah. am too old and uh, not a good enough skier to to look at this and think I should fly off this. I did. And it's, I've never been in a bad car accident, but I, I imagine this is what a car accident, the experience is like. Like you don't really, I remember being on the ledge. I don't really remember anything else until like I stopped and I'm not sure how I fell, what it looked like, when my skis left. I remember landing on my upper back and neck and that's when right, I, that's where you, that was like the contact point as yeah, I, yeah, Jeez. yeah, I think so. And it was enough that like eight people stopped and were wanted to know if we needed help. Like I was in distress. And anyway, the one thing that for the first thing was I was winded in a way where it wasn't like I was trying to get air like, <gasps> I, I was, it was like there, it was totally shut off. Like I couldn't breathe. I was, I was trying to breathe and I couldn't get any air for like 30, it felt like 30 seconds. I don't know. And of course, you know, I, I, you have a 10 year old beside you going, are you okay, dad? Are you okay? Are you okay? And it's like, give me a second here. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. anyway, it took about 10 minutes and we had a friend with us and everything, but we're like literally at the top of Blackcomb and there's enough snow there where it's not moguls, but there's no like, clear path down where you're not going to be going over bumps. And, uh, I was like, well, I got to ski down. I'm done for the day, but I'll, I'll ski down. My daughter helped me get my skis on. And I couldn't, I realized like I went, tried to go about 10 feet, realized I couldn't ski. I was like, I got to get, maybe I'll ride down on like a snowmobile. You know, that, that's what I thought. So I was like, we gotta, we gotta get the guys, the first aid people. So I lied down on a snowbank. Yeah. And I'm lying in the, on a snowbank and I'm waiting and you know how, if you're in a, I guess a snowbank is like, they took maybe 15 minutes to get there. And like my back essentially seized in, in the period where I was like, I can't even move. Long story short, 
I, I, I never felt like, oh man, I broke my back and I didn't break my back. But by the time they got there, like the guys were like, where's it, where, where are you hurt? And then they're like, all right, well, this is what we do. We got to bring you down in a, in a, on a stretcher. We got to ski you down on a stretcher. And then you're going to the clinic in an ambulance. I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know if I'm, but you know, when you're like, I don't know if I'm that bad. And then you're, but you also can't move. Yeah. Most painful thing of the entire experience, getting strapped to like a gurney and having right. a guy ski you down from the top of black hole. It was insane. You can't oh, no. see. I couldn't see where I was going. I, I, I He was like, oh, there's a doctor that might be able to give you some pain meds. He calls in and they're like, sorry, mate. He's going to have to grin and bear it. And uh, yeah. it was just like, don't, it was like he was hitting like every jump possible on the way down. Oh. It was insane. Uh, anyway, long story short, yeah, having trouble walking, but uh, didn't break my back. So I guess there's some good, there's some good news. How would you get a hold of those guys, the emergency guys? So like now, like the the dust settles, you're sitting there, and then you realize you need to be getting in touch with someone. So this was actually interesting. So I'm lucky I was just not with just my daughter because I don't think we would have been able to do it. The guy we were with had his phone looking online and then he's like, I can't find the number, but he has a friend who lives in Whistler and skis with, I guess, the guys who work on the hill. So he texted her and she was like, oh yeah, here it is, you know, ask for John type thing. So we were lucky that <laughs> in that way. But the guys, it was amazing. Everybody who, you know, the first guy showed up and he was like, you know, not a doctor or anything, but he's like, oh yeah, I think you probably, you know, tore some muscles or, you know, he had his, his kind of take on what happened. Um, right, right. I get down the, I, I ride in the ambulance. The ambulance driver says, best case scenario, you're probably walking out of here in a back brace. Worst case scenario, we may be taking you to Vancouver for surgery. I was like, oh, like I start hyperventilating. Uh, yeah. wondering about disability insurance for, <laughs> but, uh, right. and then the doctor says to me, it looks like you crushed some vertebrae, which I, again, start hyperventilating. Didn't do any of these things, but it's also strange. I feel like I'm generally a healthy guy. How everybody seemed to almost erred on the side of like worst case scenario. Yeah. Just based on looking at your body. Yeah. He was, I, the way I was contorted, he was like, oh yeah, you, your spine is destroyed. I was like, oh my, start crying. And then he's like, oh, just kidding. You know, no, I, I you pulled it, you pulled a muscle. Shape of your body, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, how you were contorted, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, I have an appointment with a, with a physio tomorrow. So we'll see. I'm not sure if this is like, I'll be healthy in three days or three months or, or maybe three decades. I'm not sure. Uh, but I'll keep you posted. Oh, man. That sounds brutal. Well, that's maybe a great segue. To... <laughs> Without further ado. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's, uh, but seriously, let's get to this talk because I'm, I'm excited to hear this one. CEO of Passive House Canada, Chris Ballard. How do we take Passive House across the country? What does that look like? This is going to be a good one. Enjoy. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This week's podcast is brought to you by Hawkeye Wealth. Yeah, past guest fan favorite Justin Smith and his team. Fantastic guy, Justin Smith over at Hawkeye Wealth. 
Hawkeye helps our clients invest in various private real estate investments, such as residential and industrial development projects with an aim to diversify their portfolios and achieve better risk-adjusted returns than they would find elsewhere. Yes. You, you, you really dragged on that elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> well, always when I think of Justin, I think big network, great due diligence, and a deal finder. If you're interested in learning more of what they're doing over at Hawkeye Wealth and the opportunities that become available, head over to HawkeyeWealth.com. That is HawkeyeWealth.com. I finally got it. Hawkeye, like he's a, he's a deal finder. He finds the deals. That's HawkeyeWealth.com. Thanks, Justin and the team. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Okay, so we're here with Chris Ballard, CEO of Passive House Canada. How are you doing, Chris? Wonderfully well, thank you. And, and thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time today, Chris. For our listeners in uh, Vancouver and, and BC, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I've been the CEO of Passive House Canada for the past two years. I have a background in politics, a background in public affairs, and actually a background in journalism, which is where I started. I think what's really relevant to the role today for Passive House Canada, especially as we talk more and more about climate change is uh, I was the Minister of Environment and Climate Change for Ontario, the Minister of Housing. So the, the confluence of those two interests to build better and to build in a way that addresses climate change is very important for us. Wow, that's incredible. So why transition into, into construction and into, I guess, the real estate industry? Well, it, it, it's very much because we know that buildings represent, on average, globally anyway, about 30 to 35 percent of the GHG pollution, greenhouse gas pollution that's uh, emitted here in Canada. It's a good 30 percent for most uh, cities, but big places like Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, it's as high as 50 to 54 percent of all of total GHG emissions come from buildings. We know we can do better. There are good standards, good technology, and we can do far better than that. Well, Chris, maybe maybe we'll start just by talking about Passive House Canada. Can you talk a little bit about the organization and how it started? Sure. Uh, well, Passive House Canada has its roots right here in Vancouver. So uh, I, I think uh, folks who live in Vancouver should be proud of that, quite frankly. But the roots of the Passive House movement and the, the standard as it exists today also have their roots in Canada, in uh, Saskatchewan. Back in the late 1970s, there was an oil embargo. Uh, Canadian governments were worried that Canadians would freeze in the dark as uh, oil supplies from the Middle East were choked off. And they began to invest in science that looked at buildings that could resist the cold Canadian winter. One of those was the Saskatchewan Conservation House in Regina, Saskatchewan. And that was a house that was built 
to withstand cold winters and use very small amounts of fuel oil to stay warm. That house is still lived in today, laid the foundation for the five principles that is passive house standard today. Uh, We fast forward a few years, then the EU was looking to reduce its energy consumption and looked around the world at a variety of building standards. One of the standards they came upon was the uh, Saskatchewan Conservation House. They visited, they took home many boxes filled with records and documents, and they gathered their information from around the world and came to what is now the Passive House uh, Institute standard. One of the scientists who was involved, the EU scientists who was involved in doing the research, founded the Passive House Institute, formalized the research into a standard, and that's what we now use internationally. So we've sort of come full circle. When the Winter Olympics were in BC not too long ago, Austria built a Passive House. The mayor of Vancouver of the day saw the Passive House, was was completely blown away by its green credentials and uh, vowed to uh, to bring Vancouver into that sphere of, uh, of Passive House. The rest, as they say, is history. But there's been a lot of work by the building industry, real estate industry, government, uh, uh, municipal, provincial governments to make the Passive House building standard more and more the way to go. I mean, Passive House is all about building a healthy environment, building a comfortable environment, and building that uses very small amounts of energy. And that's exactly what's required in today's world. So if you say they use very little energy, like is this a, is there geothermal? Is there a solar panel? Like what are we talking about when we think about how they're heated or, or how, how the passive house works? Well, for a place like lower, uh, lower mainland Vancouver, the sun is the main source of heating in the wintertime. So, you know, the principles are that where possible, you locate the building so that in the cooler months, you can get as much heat from the sun as possible. Sun coming in from the windows to heat the building. You have to use really high quality windows, windows that in the summertime, when the sun is higher in the sky, will reflect a lot of that heat back out to the environment so that in the summertime, you're not overheating. So solar orientation with really good windows, really good doors. But, you know, the two of the key principles to Passive House is lots and lots and lots of insulation. Our walls are really thick. It's like wearing a nice, you know, bulky uh downy jacket out to go skiing on a cold winter's day. That's how you stay warm is that thermal insulation. We also look at air tightness. We don't want a an exchange of air. We don't want you to have to spend any money heating air or air conditioning air or cooling the air only to have it leak from the building. So air tightness is really important. And then air quality is important because you can imagine if you now have an airtight building, you have to make sure that it has lots of fresh air. So uh, Passive House will have a heating ventilation system that, uh, first of all, is super energy efficient. It captures most of the heat or, or cold leaving the building in terms of the dirty air, and it will condition fresh incoming air. So to live or work in a Passive House means you have an environment with lots of thermal comfort, you're never too hot. You're never too cold. The air is nice and fresh. 
And it really helps to avoid overheating in the summertime and, of course, cooling in the winter. And frankly, you know, in a place like Vancouver, you can get away without having to have a furnace. You don't need a natural gas furnace. Just the, the, the heat that's given off by the, by the inhabitants of the building, you're cooking, you're showering, the solar heat coming in from the sun, more than enough to keep a, a house in Vancouver toasty warm in the winter months, quite frankly. So goodbye to having to buy a natural gas furnace. You may want to put a small little heater in the system just in case it gets really, really cold, like minus 20, uh, minus 25. But that's about all you need for uh, a geography like Vancouver. And so, you know, one of the challenges with some of the building code changes over the years in BC has been as we build more airtight, some people, if if they haven't lived with an HRV unit, there's been issues with mold or just make, um, basically freeing, you know, exhaust and, and uh, just in the day-to-day living, cooking and showering and that sort of thing. So are these more elaborate HRV systems that are going to be installed or is it is it the placement? Like, is it similar to what we experience already with HRV in, in construction? Well, if you're living in a uh, or working in a passive house with the heat recovery ventilation systems, you'll find they're not that they're that much more sophisticated, but they tend to be just better construction. There's a, a lot less leaking. But throughout the building, you know, there are sensors, there are ways of activating the HRV to make sure that the humidity is the right level of humidity. You know, too much humidity, as you say, you have mold issues too little humidity, and you have other issues, including a greater susceptibility to infections because, you know, the tissues in your sinuses dry out, those kinds of things. So, you know, using sensors, using sophisticated HRVs, uh, really well-built ones that aren't leaky and give you actual, uh, you know, good solid readings, uh, you avoid, you get the right humidity, not too much, not too little. You also do things like, um, the best way to explain it, I had an elderly woman uh, walking me through her passive house, and she came to what we would call a thermostat, and she said, there's only two buttons here, regular and party mode. And I laughed, (laughs) party mode? And she said, oh, yeah, when we get a lot of people over in this house, you know, the heat starts to go up because we have all of these humans in here heating the place up. She said, but carbon dioxide levels start going up because we're all exhaling carbon dioxide. So she says, I pushed party mode here. That ramps up the HRV, brings more fresh air in, and we stay quite comfortable while everyone is in the house. So it really is that simple. Wow. (laughs) So if somebody hasn't seen a passive house before, aesthetically, do they look different than what we're used to, like a Craftsman house or or West Coast Contemporary? Are there design constraints that that exist when building in this way? Well, you know, what what I'll tell you, Architects love building to passive house. We're, we're only prescriptive when it comes to outcomes. We, we don't lecture and tell you that you have to use these types of building materials or, or that the building has to look a certain way. A lot of the early passive house were custom built. So they're absolutely stunningly beautiful buildings as most custom homes are. But you know, any track builder could build to the passive house style. You know, if you were looking for the hallmarks of a passive house, you might notice that a passive house has thicker walls and the windows might look 
a little better quality they might have uh, because of the e-coating, a slightly different sheen to them. But I think the giveaway is how thick the walls are. But, you know, there's there's uh, whether you're building a strata, you know, you could have two uh, strata developments side by side, and it would be really difficult to tell the difference between the two. And that's the beauty of building to the passive house standard. You're not constrained by a design standard. It's a an operating standard is what we're going for. So in thinking about, I mean, it was a few years ago where we, we started hearing passive house in our market um, more and more. And now it seems that there are, are lots of projects adopting this technology. What are some of the challenges that you see in in kind of getting people on board with with passive house, or what what are the challenges? Presumably, there's a bit of education that that that's required to get people to to buy on to new technology. Can you talk about some of the challenges that you've had? Yeah, I, I think the uh, I think the biggest challenge is just trying to uh, to get uh, government and the building industry to to change. You know, inertia is the hardest thing to overcome. A lot of the issues that are brought to us by folks in the building industry, you know, we've addressed them over the years. People will say, well, there's no, you know, there's no standard that lets us build to this net zero. Well, there is, and it's called Passive House, and we've got 20 years of data to show that building to the Passive House standard actually works. You know, the, 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 the we hear that, uh, uh, there's not the trained personnel. Well, we train 2,000 people a year, architects, engineers, tradespeople, a lot of them in BC. There's lots and lots of trained architects and engineers in, in BC right now in the Vancouver area who know all about Passive House. They're certified Passive House designer consultants. We hear uh, people talk about additional cost of building green. But we're more and more addressing that. In fact, one of the latest and largest passive house projects in Canada is a YWCA building for women and their families in Hamilton, Ontario. And it, the passive house premium was 2%, which that organization will capture in just a few months of uh, operation because of exceptionally low operating costs. So I, I think, you know, the biggest challenge we face is just getting people to know that there's a different way of doing things that's not some foreign construct. It started right here in good old Canada, where we're experts at living in, in harsh climates. And um, it's really quite exciting because the, the technique exists, the technology exists, we have people who can do this. So we're looking forward to continued growth. In thinking about municipalities getting on board. I know in Vancouver, the ob- uh, some of the, the biggest critiques of, of the municipality is it's, it's, it's oft- often a lengthy process to, to build. Permits are tied up and, and it hasn't gotten any better with COVID, from my understanding. With municipalities and, and um, getting on board, do you see, like, has there been incentive programs in place or, or are there going to be incentives rolled out in the future for, for, for building Passive House? Well, I, you know, I think there are and will be incentives to build to uh, net zero high performance, of which Passive House is, is one of the standards. We argue that Passive House is the fastest and the, the least expensive way to get to uh, net zero high performance. I, I expect we'll see governments with a number of incentives. They're already incentivizing uh, 
or allowing in Vancouver, for example, because the passive house wall is slightly larger that uh, can infringe on the the usable floor space. So they're allowing you to get closer to the lot line with your external wall so that your internal floor space remains the same. So they're, you know, Vancouver is acknowledging those types of things that happen when you're building to the the net zero standard. Passive House is already an approved pathway in Vancouver. You can you can choose to use that. Uh, that can help expedite your your building. And of course, as the BC step code moves along, more and more what we're looking at when we get to the higher levels is in essence anyway, passive house. So we see this all across Canada, not just BC, that Governments may not be calling their building standard a passive house standard, but the standard, when you look at energy consumption of the building, air tightness, focus on air quality, it really is the passive house standard. We're happy with that. We don't need our name attached to it. So, you know, as governments look at escalating not only new build, but also retrofit to a very high standard, there will be more and more incentives. The Canadian government, for example, now has a uh, a retrofit um, plan or program for people who want to improve the the quality of uh, or or lower their energy consumption. So we'll see more and more. We'll, We'll have to do something to make it easier for builders to build to this standard. Quite frankly, it may be a financial incentive or it simply may be expediting their uh, development permits. You know, and you bring up a good point about retrofitting, and I'm thinking of all the buildings and houses that have been built and renovated in, say, the past 20 years or so that that have uh, not built net zero or, or, or towards net zero in the same way as Passive House. Is there a reasonable or cost-effective way to retrofit? And, um, you know, are these buildings going to be left behind? Yeah, well, you know, the exciting thing is, is that, uh, and, and, you know, I always look at the challenges we face and I see them as opportunities, opportunities to create jobs, to create investment, to create, uh, you know, returns for investors. So I'm really excited by the fact that, uh, yes, there is a high standard retrofit. It's called, uh, uh, ours is called Enerfit. Passive House Institute, uh, our Enerfit renovation standard that can reduce, uh, you know, energy consumption in a tower by seventy to seventy-five percent over the original. Wow! For new build, your energy consumption is about ninety percent less than a code-built building. So I just I should have mentioned that earlier on. That's how impressive the Passive House standard is. But to get back to, are the buildings going to be left behind? You know, we've got a lot of buildings right across Canada that uh, towers that are at that stage of life where, you know, their windows are leaking. They need uh, work on the exterior. The main boilers are shot. So the owners are having to put millions of dollars into renovating and updating their buildings anyway. For a little bit more money, they can take them to the Enerfit, the passive house standard, and have a building that costs them a lot less to operate going down the road, has really high quality assurance and really super occupant uptake and acceptance. So we're seeing more and more building owners look into Passive House. 
uh, interfit as a way of doing things. In fact, again, in Hamilton, Ontario, which is, I, I like to tease Vancouver that Hamilton is challenging Vancouver for the lead with Passive House. <laughs> they just redone one of their massive social housing towers called Ken Sobel Tower. Uh, and I would in, encourage your viewers to, to Google that. It's the, it's the tallest, largest interfit project in North America. They've done a really great job using really basic things, you know, rock wool insulation, two by fours, nothing super high tech, but really good architectural and engineering planning. They've turned that building into a super great place to live. So we don't have to leave buildings behind. There are simple and effective ways of bringing them into the low energy consortium. There are programs in Europe, and we, we should look to Europe because uh, they've done a lot of interesting things. Some are being adopted by American cities, but there are programs in Belgium, for example, where entire city blocks are deep energy retrofitted with government support. And it's made all the difference to uh, energy consumption there. And we may be doing or having to look at doing that sort of thing in Canada. but. It's exciting when you consider it's creating whole new industries. Toronto Community Housing Corporation, the second largest social housing provider in North America, is interfitting 200 of its towers. In its first phase of that interfit, they require 200,000 passive house quality windows. That's a huge opportunity for window manufacturers in right. Canada. And, and we at Passive House Canada, you know, are working with window manufacturers and door manufacturers to say, we don't want these things manufactured offshore. We want them made in Canada. We want to create jobs right here. So this goes a bit beyond the Passive House uh, Institute, you know, standard, but we're advocating for having as much of this created right here in Canada. I'm proud to say that that uh, our home is in British Columbia, Passive House Canada. Our head office is in Victoria. You know, we look to BC as our ancestral home, we'll say, because you had the Austria House and because of the great uptake for Passive House in Vancouver and the growth outside of Vancouver, Richmond, North Vancouver, goes on and on and on, the number of cities and towns that are adopting the Passive House network. And so I'm always saying that uh, BC and the Vancouver area is leading the way right across Canada. That's good to hear. Well, maybe just a, a couple more questions, Chris. In, in thinking about kind of the future of building, we've had a lot of past guests over the, over the years talk about a lot of the new construction uh, in thinking about maybe container homes or buildings that are being manufactured off-site. We've even recently had a guest on talking about 3D printing homes. Do you see alignment in the future of building with this technology? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Passive House is all the way, uh, always about thinking differently. You know, with the, with the skilled trades labor shortage the increasing cost of you know lumber and insulation, all the things required to build a building, we have to think different. There's just not enough people to do all the retrofits, all the new green build that we need to do. So modular panelization, sort of off-site construction, the use of wood to reduce the carbon footprint, 
and even 3D printing, provided it's a low carbon uh, medium they're using. All of these things need to be supported and explored. I'm certain about one thing. We can't continue to build the way we've been building for the past 100 years. We need to find new and innovative ways to do it. The beauty of the Passive House uh, standard is that it lends itself to if you want to build a modular home, a panelized system, if you want to maybe even 3D print, provided you meet the Passive House outcomes, it's a Passive House and, and we'll be here to support you. You know, there's great excitement about panelization and modular development. We'll be holding our annual symposium in the fall of 2022. We'll be looking at developments across Canada. And I know it's going to be well attended because this is a hot topic. And again, BC is home to a lot of these innovative companies. And I'm really looking to to work with them and to introduce them to other marketplaces across the country and to help this made in Canada industry grow. Chris, maybe as a, as a final question, it's been a bad couple of years in, in BC. We had devastating forest fires all summer long um, this past summer. We've had the floods early winter here. Are you optimistic about the green initiatives like net zero buildings, passive building, passive house, and what's at stake if we if we get this wrong? Well, what's at stake is is that uh, uh, we know climate change is here to stay. It, it will be getting worse in the uh, in the years ahead. The good thing is we know what needs to be done. All levels of government know what needs to be done, and and it may not be evident to a lot of us, but uh, I'm convinced that a lot of good work is going on, perhaps a little bit too much behind the scenes. But when it comes to things like overheating or cold conditions or smoke from forest fires, Passive House is the perfect building standard to build to. You do not get the overheating in a Passive House that you may experience in a code-built apartment or strata uh, or even single-family residents uh, that you would get, uh, that you would normally get. So, um, if you live in a passive house, you will not get those extreme fluctuations in heat. So, I think they're more and more calling this uh, thermal safety. You won't overheat and you won't freeze. We call it thermal comfort. Same sort of thing. Passive house is big on indoor air quality. So, when you know thick smoke blankets a city. That air is being filtered through very high-quality filters in the HRVs so that combined with a well-built, airtight building, you're getting very small amounts of uh, particulate uh, matter infiltration. So people with asthma or other lung issues are healthier there. And, you know, just the, the fact that you don't need to burn natural gas in a passive house building um, is good in terms of mitigation. So climate change is here. It's, 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 you know, we've known this. The effects of climate change will continue to worsen. The heat dome that hit BC this year was the second in three years for Canada. There was a smaller one that killed uh, about 85 people responsible for the deaths of 85 people in Quebec. We know the one in BC was responsible for at least 600 deaths uh, you know, this standard needs to be adopted across Canada. I can only imagine what will happen if it were to hit, say, southern Ontario or larger swaths of Quebec, very high populated areas. So 
the future is passive house to be, uh, you know, because they are climate resilient buildings. Well, we'll leave it there. But Chris, how, how can people find out more about what you're up to? And of course, Passive House Canada. Oh, that's really simple. We have a very robust website, PassiveHouseCanada.com. And I would encourage anyone who's interested to log in there. Uh, we have a newsletter that goes out to uh, a little over 15,000 people each month to tell you what we're up to. But just poke around on the website. We have courses, uh, if you're interested in learning more about the basics of Passive House, we have a course that uh, we give away to the public for free. And then we have uh, all sorts of information and facts for those who want to learn more. If you're a building industry professional, we've got some great courses. If you're a tradesperson, we have some great courses. Start with PassiveHouseCanada.com. Excellent. Well, we will link to that in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. That was a fascinating conversation, Chris. Well, thank you very much. And if there's any way we can ever help, please give us a call. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with CEO of Passive House Canada, Chris Ballard. Really enjoyed that conversation with Chris, Matt. Again, it was me kind of interviewing him. I think you were tied up. But man, what a great conversation. Super charismatic guy and super excited about the things that they're doing. Yeah, no kidding. I feel like the next decade or two, things are going to change so dramatically. And, and there's a lot of insight there into how that looks for housing. So no, great having Chris on the show. Uh, what else do we have, Adam, before we cut for the day? Well, for sure, we got our website, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all things real estate related. We have the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast with Corey Wright. Once again, there was a great episode this week. I want to highlight the, the mayor of Langford last week. That episode was just a killer, but you'll want to check all those episodes there at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also have the... Well, I was just going to say, just not to interrupt, but we also had John Friesen from Mission Group on. Oh, he's uh, this week, and, right? Yeah, exactly, which which um, John's been on our show and we had tremendous feedback oh. when he was on last year. And uh, from my understanding, I haven't actually listened to the episode yet, but from my understanding, it's it's a really great show. We've had a lot of positive feedback already. I so. feel like it's almost, yeah, no matter how it goes, um, John Friesen is is a guy you want to you wanna listen to. So that's great. That's this week's episode. What else do we have at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com, Adam? We have the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer. You get stats before anyone else, different types of stats that you can't get anywhere else. You get deal of the month, VIP access to commercial and residential, of course, real estate projects. We're sending out a project this week that's coming in kits, pre-sale VIP access. There's no reason you don't want to be on this list. We also have private client services. Yeah, Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information for free at your fingertips. It's available at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And a lot of people have been asking about finding renovation projects. Um, we just oh, uh, right. on the our Instagram, the before and after photos of a renovation project that we completed that we bought at the end of last year. PCS has some amazing ways to search for distressed properties. So get in touch if you want to sign up for that. And how can people get in touch with you, Matt? 
Adam, they can try me at 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line coming live from Hawaii. Info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And Adam, are you going to be back in Kokomo Studios next week? I I have no idea when you're coming back. You know what? I'm back on the uh, 24th. So I... Wow, I can't, extend, uh, talk I can't about extended math. vacation. I, I, I Neither can I. Uh, you still got a long time in uh, in Hawaii. I think it was a 10-day trip in total. But are you uh, done with skiing? For life? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. I, I, I definitely, the guy even said to me, one of the, the quote-unquote grizzled veterans who, uh, who helped strap me into the gurney was like, you're getting too old for this, mate as they all say. Um, wow. Like, well, because he asked me what happened. I was just explaining it. And I, maybe he was joking because presumably those guys are doing all sorts of crazy things. But right. yeah, an old fat guy like me, it's uh, it's not a good look. So yeah, I might just start doing S-turns from now on. Right, right. This reminds me of that joke, what's the capital of Australia? What's that? Whistler. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. I'm on vacation. All right. <laughs> <Clearly>. <laughs> Have a good week, everyone, and uh, we'll be back next week. Okay, take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today.